Hello, this is the Bureau of Lost Culture. I'm Stephen Coates, and this is the second of two episodes dedicated to the incredible story of the Incredible String Band. In part one, we had something of that story with Adrian Whitaker, compiler of a vast new book of writings about the band. It's called Be Glad For The Song Has No Ending. And we also heard from Peter Neal, director of an extraordinary psychedelic film, also called Be Glad For The Song Has No Ending, made in West Wales and various other parts of the UK in the early 70s. I'm going to hear some excerpts from Peter's film today. If you don't know about the band, I suggest you have a listen to that first episode when we took a whirlwind trip through their life and times from their origins as an obscure Scottish folk trio to mainstream success in Europe and the US, all based around the core duo of Robin Williamson and Mike Heron. But what a trip it was. I mean, they were more of a cult than a band, gathering a fiercely loyal tribe of fans many of whom remain loyal to them to this day. They were massively influential, experimental, mystical, magical, perhaps living the values of the counterculture more than any other band. As Stephen Duffy says, they were our dead, as in the Grateful Dead. But that was the story from the outside looking in. Today we get to hear the story from the inside looking out, because my guest is Rose Simpson, now, if you're a fan of the band, of course you'll know Rose. She was one quarter of the Incredible String Band during what many regard as their creative and countercultural peak in the late 60s and early 70s. Her memoir, published by Strange Attractor, Muse, Odalisk and Handmaiden, is an incredible story in its own right. It relates how she span from an accidental meeting in a Scottish mountain climbing cottage as a student without any particular interest in music or the counterculture to photo shoots in American Vogue and playing at Woodstock within a couple of years. Avoided getting involved in Scientology and in the process growing up. I think it's an important story too because it's a woman's story. Women's stories, as we know, have often been forgotten in the history of the counterculture. As she says herself, a woman's story is often less strident than the narratives of the men surrounding her. More visceral, sometimes more homely and aware of its own vulnerability. My incredible string band years are rooted in domestic detail, but such detail runs behind all exciting lives. It's how we recognise that the poets and prophets we looked up to are human too. I can only tell here how it seemed to me as an intimate observer of the lives lived so close to mine. Welcome to the Bureau of Lost Culture, Rose. Hi. Hello. Glad to be here. Is that how you pronounce that, odalisk, the middle word? Odalisk. I do, yes. Okay. What does it mean? My image of it is it's like a Turkish, in the, in the context of sort of Turkish delight, that cliche of really a slave girl, I guess, although I, I didn't see it as that. I just saw it as one of these attractive looking maidens who's draped around on kind of Victorian genre paintings, you know. Um, this is a beautiful book, Rose. I think it's quite an important book. I mean, it's a memoir, obviously, it's your memoir of your time in the band, but actually it feels to me on reading it an important woman's story from the counterculture. And I thought we could just start off by me reading back to you something that you say in the preface, right? 
This story could be that of any of the girls on the psychedelic album covers and posters of 1968. Those deluded or exploited airheads, as they've now often been seen, and so can be dismissed from the public gaze. We hear plenty from men whose names appear on the same records, sitting on the platforms of literary festivals and TV studios, hoping we don't notice their thinning hair and the stoop frailty of the age they conceal. Political women and academic ladies, radical female artists and thrusting businesswomen have all demanded their voices be heard. But most of us just stroll along the path that time is taking, doing the ordinary things of ordinary lives. But we too were claiming equalities on the terms that matter to us, more erratic and physical perhaps than ideological. And that story also needs telling. That's a rather great place to begin because this story of you in the band and a little bit about what happens before and a little bit what happens afterwards is one of those stories that maybe has been left behind, right? Yeah. And, and I, it was, that was the reason, in, that was the whole rationale for writing the thing. I never wanted to, I never had anything to tell the world, but suddenly I was aware that people were telling stories that involved me and other girls at the time like me. And they, we were just assumed, it was assumed that our consent, it was assumed that our presence, it was assumed, and we had really little say in it but nor did we expect to have any say in it you know and and we just yeah that we just carried on and did it and it's only in retrospect when everyone is now looking back and analyzing all that time that you suddenly realize that those lives also were important and that that, that the girls had significant presences I and mean, if you look to see you know what a lot of them did afterwards then that puts that present in a context, you know. Even in the title, I suppose, Muse, Odalisk and Handmaiden, you are quite sort of frankly honest about your role in it, your position in it. And yet, at the same time, what's apparent when you read the book, and maybe this is what happens to the Incredible String one afterwards, actually, it's a fairly crucial role. Do you feel that somehow, looking back, that, you know, your cornerstone, your quarter of the band in the those years actually was pretty crucial. Yeah, I absolutely do. Not just me, but other other girls in that position, you know, and uh, artists and all sorts. Well, I say we were never given any credit, but nor did we claim it. You know, we we were anti-ideology almost. We were anti. We were idealists, but in a very unspecific way, you know. And and yes, I think that I'm just one of many. There were female solo artists. There were very few female-fronted bands. And in fact, the female artists outside the pop and maybe the, some of the folk circles, with the exception possibly of Yoko Ono, weren't really taken seriously. And of course, Yoko Ono drew the ire, didn't she, of a lot of Beatles fans, a lot of yeah. Lennon fans. as this yeah. kind of intruder on what was previously been a sort of a rather harmonious male setting but that's how it's often seen isn't it it's how, and, and because she didn't stay in her place you know she she wanted well i presume she wanted to be heard certainly she was heard it was that assumption that you would always be effectively a backing singer and the old one we were just taking over the romantics weren't we really where the poet um the male musician is the creative spirit and the female companion um is just a sort of support system your 
time with the band, which is really their peak, I think creative peak and sort of probably commercial peak, wasn't it as well? But yeah, you sort of fell into it. And I think that let's start off with a few places because there was this place in Scotland. Tell us about Temple Cottage, because that's really in some ways where the story sort of starts for you, isn't it? Yes, it was, but n- n- not with any intention of being being musical, you know. Temple Cottage was, as far as I was concerned, an extension of the of the mountain climbing scene. It was where where climbers went to stay when they went up to Scotland in winter or summer to do snow climbing. Chris Bonington was the one that everyone, the name that everyone knew, but all the rest were there too. The Rock and Ice lads, you know. So you're and already that, you're already in quite a male um, uh, sort of surroundings then. And but tell us about Mary as well, who's who's cottage. Oh, it Mary was. was incredible. Mary was amazing. She's big, strong, one of those um, sort of iconic women mountaineers, you know. Uh, with I think she had reddish hair, but she was just very strong and and very open, very forthright. There's, there's whole stories, there was whole sort of myths about about Mary and how she could carry someone across the hills when they wreck their ankle or something you know uh, yeah she was sort of a myth in the mountaineering world but she also seemed to operate this extraordinary open door policy with her place where not only you know mountaineers people people like you who loved climbing could just sort of rock up right it was almost as far as when i actually did rock up it was almost like another mountain hut where you rolled in at the end of the day um, maybe unannounced, uh, and you hope that you'd be able to get a fire in the grate and dry out a bit, you know, and sleep somewhere overnight. Muck in with the food and, you know, you might find yeah, yeah. a bunch of, you know, fellow souls there. And in one case, one day, one night, you'll actually turn up there and you do find these people there. They're not actually yeah. mountaineers, are they? It's Robin <laughs> Williamson, Licorice and, and Mike Heron, yeah. right? And that's when it all began, isn't it? Here is a sidebar from Rose's memoir describing life at Temple Cottage. Real life is the chaotic homeliness of the ground floor of the house where people work and children play. But slipping quietly upstairs, I drift into another land. Robin's and Licorice's door opens onto an ethereal dimension of fable and mystery. I'm cautious, maybe even apprehensive, as I knock very quietly, knowing that Mike is there with them and hoping for a welcome. I'm eager to enter the dreamland. The downstairs walls were whitewashed long ago and are now greyish, but this room is radiant with colour. The rough corners and angles softened by strewn possessions, hand-painted mandalas and draped beads fill the spaces between the technicolour holiness of Krishna posters. Sometimes Robin or Licorice pick up a brush or a crayon, drawing another whirling circle to trap the conscious mind. The room always smells of the incense cones burning on ashtrays and of the wax from perfumed candles which gradually drips in trails over nearby cushions and on my skirt if I sit too close. Clothes are left lying around everywhere. Heaped contents spill out of open drawers onto the floor. Filmy scarves, embroidered bags, beaded waistcoats, strange pantaloons. Even books aren't lined up sensibly but fall over to show their pages. Pictures have been torn out and lie strewn over the bed and the mats, along with letters from friends. The astrological diagrams and sepia photographs of Eastern mystics mean nothing to me. They call all that claptrap where I come from. But Robin and Lick talk to them and call the images their friends. 
I've never seen musical instruments like those on the wall, these peculiar and strange ornaments, contributing their own small echoes, clicks and buzzes to the room's melodies. Robin is often playing and singing when I go in, not to entertain or to practice, but because it's his way of speaking to the world, and it makes them both happy. He and Licorice lie wrapped warm in everything from old flannelette sheets to silky oriental bedspreads. Licorice can look unearthly while swaddled in the many-coloured layers. The old patchwork cushions make a soft pillow and she slips off into reveries, then sleepy dreams. More an inhabitant than a visitor, Mike is clearly used to the room. At first he sits alert and upright on the old leather poof in the corner. Then he leans against the wall as they talk and smoke, until finally he ends up slumped on a cushion on the floor. His face is as beautiful in the stillness of sleep as when lit up by his dark eyes. I know I'm being swept along by the romance of it all, mixing fact and fantasy, but after several hours I can't distinguish dreams from reality. wasn't so unusual to find the odd sort of folk singing person in mountaineering mm. circles because that's that was part of the ethos of it all you know um folk singing at the folk club at night in the back room of the pub um but these didn't look like folk singers no not know how you know <laughs> and um, they didn't present as folk singers and the whole idea although they could certainly do it if everyone did end up sitting around around the fire and everything, which we then they could knock out a jig and as well as anybody, but that wasn't what they looked. That was what partly it was such an incongruous mixture. It was such a mind blowing scenario to to walk into this place of extremes. You know, the ex- extreme hippies and the extreme mountaineers. Really, Robin and Mike. I mean. They seem the opposite in some way of kind of big, butch, tough, um, booted engineers. They're sort of floating around in sort of medieval clothes, right? In yeah, waff- totally they were. Mike looked more sort of straight, but not really. I mean, it was very difficult for Mike to look straight because he had such an amazing face at the time, you know, mm. and he just didn't come over like that. Then other, other odd people used to turn up, you see, like the monk from Samuel Ling, the, the monastery, the Buddhist monastery. I mean, someone like that turning up in the middle of the night is very strange. It was it was open house. I mean, I don't think the door ever was locked. You just sort of pushed open the door and went in. You mentioned this incident when Chogyam Trungpa, you know, who yeah. became very famous later, yeah. um, sort of fled Tibet, hadn't he? And, and then sort of turned into a kind of countercultural figure of, of his uh, by himself, you know. And, uh, and he sort of just kind of opened the door one day, came in, and then, you know, within about five minutes, he's doing this kind of exotic dance. It was astonishing. I can still see it. It was sort of like my head exploded. That was not on any drugs or anything. That just because this strange world, it was like, it was like going through the looking glass. Then. All the way through your book, there is this sense with you of wonder at all these things that are happening. There's a lot of serendipity and possibly in synchronicity. You stumble into situations and then things start to happen. Literally within a few years of this meeting, you know, of going to this place to do some climbing, you're being photographed in American Vogue. And yet I never really noticed almost. You know, th- th- this was just another day. And, and that ability somehow, which I just obviously was terribly lucky to have at the time, just to take the day as it came, you know, and, and think, oh, right, OK, this looks good. I'll do this. I can't tell you. I'm just so delighted that I managed to somehow keep that, you know. 
Well, you squeezed a lot into the following four years. And so, so just for listeners, the, you know, the basic story of, of the incredible string band. And they'd already had some success by this time. First of all, as a trio, then as the duo. Um, and then over the next four years, basically, you go from being romantically involved with Mike Heron, who is sort of single, to becoming a full, fully-fledged member of the band and playing Woodstock. It's a sort of meteoric... Um, I think mind-blowing is the, probably the correct um, phrase to use here. It's trip, uh, I think yeah. probably a useful word, through this swinging 60s countercultural underground and then, you know, in some ways mainstream life of jet planes and limousines and parties and drugs. From Temple Cottage, you and Mike get involved. And by the way, I mean, Mike was stunningly good-looking, wasn't he? Oh, he was. He was ridiculously good-looking. I mean, it was just, it was, a bit, again, that was part of the fairy story somehow. It was like walking into a fairy story. You guys get involved, and Robin is already involved with yes. licorice. Uh, in fact, you know, that first night you walk into their room and it's this kind of strange cornucopia of incense and weed and yeah. cosmic posters and all sort of stuff. There's sort of four of you. You're a kind of family. What is interesting for me in terms of countercultural stuff over the next um, year or two is that you are Mike's girlfriend, right? But yes. it's the time when you're not really allowed to be uncool if Mike should be with somebody else. No, absolutely not. It's the way you describe it is that you were cool with it, actually. It wasn't that you are pretending. Is that right? It is true. I, it was a bit like, sort of in a horrible image, like bursting a boil. You have that kind of resentment because that's what you expect to have. You know, that's how we were brought up. We, you know, we, we expected some sort of fidelity and things like that. And then you realise this isn't going to happen and the pressure goes. And then, so you have a couple of really bad days, right. really bad days. And then you think, no, this is nonsense. This is just nonsense. This, life is not worth this. You know, there are better things to do than being jealous and resentful. And luckily we could do it. I still maintain that there was a sort of bond between the four of us. Okay, it didn't last forever and it came and went and it, and it morphed into all sorts of different shapes but somehow it was tight and somehow that was more important yeah and the same for i guess for robin and uh, lick you know they yeah. have the same sort of relationship were the guys okay with you and like doing the same thing we never talked you never talked we never mentioned it it wasn't cool either to talk about it the whole idea was that you just accepted in a way what was before your eyes and everyone had their right to complete total freedom you somehow demeaned yourself you sort of somehow challenged your own integrity by challenging theirs you know it was there was a sort of ideology for sure behind it all you know and 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 i think we also have underplayed that you know we've underplayed how much people genuinely had ideas that were significant and that took political forms for some people but for all those people where they didn't take political forms, it didn't mean that they weren't also acknowledging them and somehow living by them. And so that also is a version of freedom, allowing your lover to come and go and wander off and return and all the rest of it and being cool with it then. Which is very much of the time, right? Yes. And, and also an experiment, an experiment which I'm sure went wrong on many occasions, but still an experiment worth trying, right? Yeah, I mean, have been looking back a lot more and trying to put the whole thing in a wider context and yes we made ridiculous mistakes and some that had 
really seriously bad consequences. I mean, I was just so lucky that I didn't get involved in bad consequences. And, and none of the people I know directly did either. I don't quite know how we were so lucky, but somehow we were. But yes, some of the mistakes were dreadful. There's a few times in the book you refer to that stuff, I think, when you're talking about scenes in London, with, which involve yeah. like underage girls and stuff, yeah. which is kind of very dark side yes. of that, which yeah. you know, it's not really been talked about much. And of course, I think a lot of women did get on the bad side of that, um, those sexual yeah. experiments as well, didn't they? But one thing which really struck me over those four years, particularly between, uh, I think, you and Mike, but also between Robin and Lick as well, is that whatever the infidelity or the polyamory as we call it now uh, that was going on there was a sort of fidelity between you wasn't there you remained true to each other you lived together and even when there was other other women you were all part of the same band and you all yeah. managed to keep that going I mean yeah. there was a sort of fidelity wasn't there for me I think for Mike also and I think we were really young and mm. you know it's the old story isn't it if you'd if you'd known then what you know now of course, it would all, all would all be different, or maybe it wouldn't. But I think there was a fidelity. I think there was a bond which was stronger than all those comings and goings. That loyalty plays out even to Woodstock, where the boys won't go on stage without the, the girls. Those crisis moments, I think, brought out mm. where people really stood somehow. Mm. You know, I'd, I heard the backstage tapes, you know, and that was mm. fascinating. We're going to come back to Woodstock, but Lick is already kind of more established, but you're now on the scene and you move from being the girlfriend and maybe not taken seriously by people in the music industry around Mike and Robin. <laughs> and then you move to sort of being stage decoration, as it were, uh, which is sort of uh, the dancers had previously sort of um, performed yeah, that thing. Absolutely. And, you know. But Robin and Mike, they were very encouraging of both of you to pick up instruments and start playing stuff. You, you start joining in with the singing. And you, you're very honest all the way through about your, you describe it as your kind of lack of musicality or your lack of, lack of, lack of skill when it comes to actually playing instruments. But you don't let that get in the way. And in fact, what really comes over to me is that that became part of the vibe of the incredible string band. The four of you on stage with this kind of intimacy between you, rather haphazard, you could even say amateurish, right? Yeah. But the charm of that was what really pulled the audiences in, wasn't it? And that's what I mean about there were, there were ideals behind all this. It wasn't mm. just random we and i think more credit to mike and robin because i mean they were outstanding i mean as musicians as writers as all sorts of things but you know we really did think that everybody should be able to make music that everybody had music in them that everybody should have a go at writing poems and that we were just doing what we wish everybody to do you know and a lot of people were doing a lot of kids getting a guitar or a in the earlier days, getting a washboard and playing skiffle. I mean, it was part of that democratisation of everything, you know, of um, making making it possible for everybody to have a better life. That you know, you didn't have to just go down the factory production line or whatever it was. You could do something. The comparison for me is actually maybe ten years later with punk. Now, the incredible yeah. string band four punks were probably the epitome of what they were kicking against you know like the sort yeah. of in terms of the music and in terms of the look and yet at the same time strangely 
that was just the same spirit, wasn't it? Because the spirit of punk yes. was that you, you can play a chord, you learn another chord, you learn another chord, now write a song. It's exactly that. It was exactly that. And I think that was so important. Uh, um, and that's about all these other girls in all the other things. Their presence was significant. I think very few of those girls that you see in the, in the pictures were purely decorative. You know, that's probably what everyone thought they were doing. In real life, they were doing far more than that, you know. And they had a right to do it. They had a right to be there, you know, and they weren't told what to, to wear by some manager who said you must wear that. It wasn't choreographed. No, you do it because you can. You have something to give the world, you know, and just do it. Yeah, and let's not play down the importance of decoration because another big part of the story, and in fact another big part of this whole time and the Incredible String Band, is the look. Let's call it that, right? I'm not going to use the word style because it doesn't say feel quite right in this context, no. but you were making clothes, you were, like, were finding clothes, you were sort of, yeah. a lot of the creativity went into this craft thing of dressing yeah. each other and the band. And that also started to influence the kind of the hippie counterculture around you, didn't it? I suppose it did. I mean, to me, it just came naturally. It just always done. And um, I think it did with all of us, really. We, I, we, we were never particularly aware, I don't think any of us were aware, that we were trying to do anything special. We were just doing what we thought we'd like to do at the time, you know. Um, we liked looking for clothes in funny old shops, you know, and we liked sewing a few bits together and, and we just enjoyed it. We just were having fun. It's this extraordinary kind of bricolage, DIY, hand-assembled, hand-stitched. Sometimes you guys look incredibly hip and cool and sometimes it's like you've got medieval jesters right connections also somehow with the pagan past or maybe an imagined yeah. pagan past which is also of course very much in the songs and in the way that particularly robin writes isn't it there's this kind of yeah. connect, connection back through sort of britain's history and myth yeah. and story yeah. in the songs and it's also in the style right and I think that also comes from an earlier time, doesn't it? I think we were also looking back to the sort of 20s. And uh, and I think this is a bit more dark. We were looking back further. We were looking back to Walter Scott, I suppose, and all that sort of revival of imagined folk cultures, you know. It wasn't in our minds. We, we were just doing it, you know. It was interesting. It was important somehow. Uh, at the beginning of the century, it had been rejecting the industrial march forward, I suppose. But by the time it got to us, all that march forward had manifested itself in two world wars. And so there was that looking back to what is it being human in its most kind of basic form? Tell us about what role for you and for the band that drugs played, Rose. I couldn't really pick that up from your memoir. I was just wondering whether it was important or not, say, for instance, particularly in terms of consciousness-raising aspects of, say, LSD. And was that a big part of things for you? I think it was. And I think, again, it's quite sort of difficult now to to look at it um, as we looked at it. You know, There was a huge innocence at the time. The place was awash with drugs, I mean, one way or another, but it was serious. And it's that seriousness about it. I think there was, it was a genuine search for what 
what then and still later i suppose is called enlightenment you know we really wanted to see what the better world was like but there's so many so many shadows lurking around all of this you know like you said about the sexual freedoms but also that kind of drug freedom mm. yes drugs did liberate one from conventional ways of thinking and yes it was a short sharp way of doing it you know we didn't have sort of 30 years to spend learning how to do deep meditation you know we wanted enlightenment tomorrow and, and a good way of maybe moving in that direction or perhaps just faking it, who knows, did seem to break through. It, it was like you were kind of in, enclosed in some sort of shell, you know, and it was like breaking through the shell. And that's what drugs could do, we thought. But of course, then it starts to get excessive and then you start to have all sorts of negative stuff as well. But yes, drugs were important and LSD was important, but it was important more, more as a ritual experience. Yeah. Um, you took in the spirit of a ritual experience. It wasn't fun, 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 you know. So that permeates all the way through this story as well, doesn't it? Because there's, you know, Robin and Mike, they were sort of serious. Their songs could be funny and lighthearted yeah. too, but they were, particularly Robin, I think, you get this impression that he, he definitely took himself very seriously and, you know, rightly so in terms yeah. of his kind of inspirations, right? Now, coming to this kind of pretty new, really, Incredible Stringman's story in some ways seemed to me like a kind of a little analogue of the story of the counterculture. It's got a bit of everything in there. You go from this cottage life with the clothes, with the sexual freedom, with the drugs, and of course the music. It's all about the music. You're playing on stages scattered with rugs and exotic instruments which you're picking up and blowing and plucking and banging and, and, yes. and you know, <laughs> enthusiastically with a bit of dancing thrown in. <laughs> The audiences are, are loving it, at least for a while, aren't they? And it's because it's, it's this wonderful intimacy between the four of you, particularly in the early part of the uh, story. There's this sense of it all being part of this thing called the counterculture in some way, right? It was very much part of it. And, and, and you know, we would have, well, we would, I think we would have embraced any sort of thing, anything that went along with that. You know, we mm. were really not exclusive. We, we really, at first we weren't at all, you know, we really were open to new experiences. That was mm. the whole point of it was was to be open to all the new things that the world might offer in order to make the world a better place. Right. And this theatrical aspect of it as well, then that sort of flowers next in this move when you go to West Wales and you live briefly in this kind of, it sounds quite brutal, in this West Wales, I know those West Wales cottages, obviously freezing cold and damp the whole time. But to make this nutty film, I mean, forgive me for saying that, but it is bonkers. Um, Which is quite bonkers, yeah, totally.
I mean, tell us about it. What was it? Even reading your book and even watching the film, I'm still thinking, what is this? What was I it? I don't know, really. I never <laughs> did quite know. I suppose part of the the illusion of it all, still don't know, even talking to people occasionally, how much they took it seriously. Apart from Robin, I don't think anyone knew what on earth was going on. I don't think the the dancers or whatever they thought they were, I don't think even they really knew what was going on particularly. But at the same time, I'm sort of, part of me is thinking, yeah, but it's it's experimenting. It was, it was an experiment worth doing, you know, to try it out at yes, least. This kind of, tr- you know, trying to make a film and, and this kind of theatrical, musical, mythological piece where you're all playing these different roles and dressing up in costumes. Some of it is like Monty Python, I have to say. Oh, completely. Um, <laughs> I think it's all like Monty Python. <laughs> and very silly. Other bits of it is amazingly cool. But you're doing these things as well, mixing it all up, really. And at the same time, then you're going on tour, and your description of tour is very interesting for me, having you know, toured myself. Uh, this kind of endless round of, of hotel rooms and service departments and planes and stuff. And, of course, it started to happen in America too. Joe Boyd, Uber producer Joe who discovered Incredible String Band and then sort of piloted you through the first albums. And the four of you seemed like children in a way, you know, doing crazy stuff. And Joe's almost like the mother, isn't he? Sort of organising things and sorting you out and booking planes and tours and, and guiding you and sort of herding sheep sort of thing, isn't he? Herding cats. Herding cats, that's it, yeah, yeah. Onto American stages. But what I love about it when you describe it is that you're just like, yep, yep, I'll do that, I'll do that, bring it on, photo shoots in New York, you know, meeting famous people in San Francisco, going to Laurel Canyon. You're, you're still like this wide-eyed kid thinking like, is this life? Yes, I'll have it. I'll, I'll have it. I was lucky. I mean, that was a great advantage of not being a musician because I didn't have to take it seriously. You know, I, I had no idea of having a life in anything like that or music or performing or anything. It was absolutely not on my radar as a possibility. And so for me, it was just a new day and new fun. Oh, let's try this one, you know. Um, but if you were a serious musician and Mike and Robin were serious, creative people, then, of course, it was different. Joe may or may not tell you that um, they were not quite so easy to move around. I think they had quite strong ideas of their own, although Mike probably wouldn't have stood against Joe. Robin certainly did on quite a few occasions. I think that's the story often with bands, isn't it? As the confidence grows and maybe there's a sense of their own uh, their own significance to or, or to audiences grows. You know, you're getting a lot of fee- lot of uh, affirmation from audiences and stuff. You become more confident. Whereas at the beginning, it's, you're very happy for somebody else to take care of all the business stuff and make all the decisions. Um, you know, it's just part of growing up, isn't it, in a way, is that you want to take control yourself. And that often brings with it the kind of classic music biz conflicts, e- either between people in the bands. And you've got to men- remember that for Robin, it was from the start. He didn't need the affirmation from people. And he never has, I think. I think Robin is so sure. I don't know him anymore, really. I mean, I haven't seen him for years now. But I've always still felt, even when I saw him maybe sort of 30, 40 years later, he seems to have a sort of inner inner certainty that this is what he's supposed to be doing. But remember that it was only after the first LP, um, Robin just walked out, just went, went, went off, and, and um, as, as Clive did and all that stuff. Rose, I've got to come to what seemed to me to be an absolutely pivotal moment. The four of you are on the road a lot, you're playing gigs, 
generally speaking, it's all going very well. Records are being made, etc. It's a classic countercultural story, isn't it? Because the next thing that happens is that there's this interaction with Scientology. And yeah. that seemed to me to be a major turning point for you. For me, definitely. And for the band's career in some way, actually. Definitely. I still don't really understand it. And the only justification is that, that the life was not really sustainable. And that because we didn't analyse, and because there was nobody who stood back and took that role for us. So Joe wasn't the mother, father figure who could or wanted to stand back and say, this is too much. And they probably wouldn't have listened anyway. Then I think it was, it was almost a desperation. I still can't really understand how those people would go for that belief system then. And, and I could never talk to them about it. And I never have been able to talk to them, even when I met them years later. And whether that's because of their maybe residual allegiance to it or their residual fear of it, or just because I've never managed to get that close again to talk about it. And again, for listeners, it wasn't just the Incredible String Band. So various other, you know, countercultural people from the time and certainly other bands and stuff got involved with various cults along the way, didn't they? Um, yeah. The way I understood it is that particularly for Licorice, who she's actually in, in, in a way the strangest of the four of you, sort of personality-wise. It's, it's her that leads... First of all, Robin into Scientology, and then this pull Mike in, and you're sort of go along with it, basically. That's what it felt like, yeah. I mean, there was no choice. They were quite insistent, weren't they? You can make things clear without mm. insisting. So we never did have confrontation. And so it was just, this is what we're doing. Just like we're going to do this gig tonight, we're going to go to this this thing today you know this organization this office this thing we will do this you know and that's what i mean about the bond too you see because y you do tend to operate also as a group you know even though you might say you don't get on or you're not getting on today or you you've got all sorts of problems but you still that group thing keeps you together somehow you know i think in your case you don't want to be the person who breaks the bond right so no definitely not the other three are going hell for leather into Scientology. And yeah. um, so you go, you'll go along with it. The strangest thing, for such a hippie band, for such a band that really did live it with the communes and the you know, yeah. the, the, the strange performances in the, by Welsh prehistoric yeah. monuments, to go into something like Scientology, this, this kind of like uptight 60s yeah. corporate yeah. America, middle America, yeah. weird. All to do with money. All to do with money. Pyramid scheme cult. Yeah, absolutely. It seems absolutely nuts. And that's what I mean about there must have been so much sort of unresolved, uncared for, unacknowledged mental, emotional things washing about, you know. I mean, was was there all this stuff going on that obviously affected others more than me? I don't know. So maybe in a sense that your own psychological background is more stable and I think that does come through. In maybe the stability better so scientology enters the frame and of course it starts to eat up quite a lot of the band's finances as well yeah. and yeah. certainly a lot of the time and also it changes the music because i think you know it seems that the a lot of the lyrical content of the music starts to become influenced by scientological thinking yeah. and also a, a sort of distance creeps in between the band and the audience right the audience yeah. are sort of still trying to relate to you as yeah. we're all part of the same family yeah and then there's this kind of pseudo hierarchy has kind of yeah. s sneaked in right it was i think that was the worst thing i think it's probably sort of a bit inevitable with bands anyway that but because you're put on stages therefore above everybody 
you are going to get that feeling of being in some way superior. However you judge a superiority, it's just because you're a lot richer than them or because you think you're so creative and they're not. Or I think that sense, I think it's quite difficult to keep that feeling of being entirely part of the people that you're playing to and looking down on. But Scientology actually tells you, and, and you're paying a lot of money to, to get to the next stage of being even better than everybody else, you know. So you've got to be a this and a that and a this stage. And, and at some point, you're going to achieve um, some sort of peak of enlightenment. You're going to go clear. You're going to go clear. And, and everybody who's not clear is not only beneath you, but they're also potential enemies. And I think that was a killer. So spend less time with those people, spend more time with the Scientologists. Yeah. Of course, it does have prescriptive things about life, about, say, not taking drugs and, and that. Being married. Being married, right, being more conventional. I'm definitely not an apologist for Scientology, but you could sort of see how that did bring some benefits, possibly. I think it did, in that sense, yeah, much more easy to organise. Easy to communicate with in some respect, right? Well, yes and no. I mean, easier to communicate with, but then Scientology has its own own language. Mm. I don't know if it does anymore, but it certainly did then. Its own sort of Scientology speak. I found that so, so ugly. If you want to have a sort of in-group speak, you know, I'd rather have the, the hippie one, naive though it was. But that Scientology speak coming from that dreadful Midwest capitalist culture of people with white picket fences i didn't like it and i and i don't think it helped anybody's creativity yeah and i think this is where we really start to notice the split between you and the others um but the gigs carry on and tours carry on in a way things are going better than ever sort of the other kind of signal moment for me in the book is woodstock because you're on the bill and you go there with with joe you're trying to it's absolute it's interesting seeing it from a performer's point of view and you're not in raptures about it because it's absolutely chaotic it's like a war zone yes mike in particular but also robin is reluctant to play in the on the first evening because this yeah. terif- terrified of getting electrocuted which of course had, had, had happened previously to one of your road crew yeah. and also you know with all your rugs and instruments and stuff like that and there was a big fear that you couldn't pull it off and, and as, as we said earlier they kind of rather i thought gamely and rather loyally weren't prepared to go on as Joe wanted them to and just do a kind of, the two of them do a, a folky set. You sort of go on on the Sunday. By that time, the weather's improved a lot, but it's rock out day. So you're in the middle of the American yeah. hard rocking bands and it, <laughs> and, it, and it doesn't work, does it? it no, just, absolutely it, it doesn't work. It was dreadful. Um, but we didn't feel great anyways. It would have been better just not to do it, really. Mm. Of course, the, the, this lovely, intimate sound and also the kind of patience required, you know, t- t- for some of the songs was not, it's not there at a rock festival, is it really? Oh, but no. still, Rose, I have to say, you have played at Woodstock.
but it's great to have done it. I like to see the photographs, I'm, and I'm really delighted to have been there. I mean, that is fantastic. In a life, that totally. is a really great thing to have done. Totally, totally. To Not to have done the playing bit, but to have been there and been part of it, where you really felt you were part of it, because you knew what was going on from the inside as, as much as anyone could, you know. Yeah, well, I'm zooming around in a helicopter as well. It's pretty cool. Yeah, that was quite funny, yeah. This is these things are happening, but you know, back home in in Scotland, you know, you're you're all living together for a while anyway in these Glen cottages, this sort of yeah. sort of pseudo commune, right? And people are coming and well, going. Absolutely, and... it was. Yeah, absolutely. In a way, it was not entirely communal. It was quite surprising how much distance we did manage to keep, but it was very, it was a very much communal existence, really. Yes. You've all got your own cottages by this time, so it's a yes. lot, you know. You, and so there's a lot more freedom, as it were, to do your own thing. And your freedom starts to express itself. It, I did have this sense of, okay, there are these things. Scientology is the big one, which is creating the distance, and maybe also the romantic connections are much less strong. But also, you're growing up. That's the that's the yes. sense I had. Whereas at the beginning of these four years, you were very much maybe the handmaiden, you know, then the muse. I think by the end, it did feel like you're looking around and saying, hold on a minute, is this what I want, right? Definitely. I like this scene. I think you're in LA and Crosby Stills and Nash and you, you're hanging out with them and the band are sort of like, the rest of the band are kind of doing the Scientology thing and eating macrobiotic food. This this moment when you, you go and get yourself a big chunk of bloody steak and a beer. And sit in the sit, sit in the park, wolfing this the steak it down. Was right, such a relief. It could get so wearing. You know, these part of it was because it made you feel bad. Because say you had some sort of meal in a macrobiotic restaurant somewhere, a lot of the people who you would come along, they really believed in Mike and Robin and everything they were doing and the string band and and their their whole idea of it was so. Uh, putting people on pedestals and and I didn't ever want to be on a pedestal it was not my thing I might have liked to have been on a pedestal if I'd been you know the wonderful creative writer and all the rest of it but I was just there you know I was one of them I wasn't someone that you should be looking up to and and, and it made me feel bad because I couldn't talk the talk I couldn't I wasn't willing to pull the wool over anyone's eyes and pretend that I was you know, some sort of hippie queen or whatever it was they wanted me to be, because I wasn't. And at some point, you, you just get fed up of sort of keeping quiet and trying to sort of hide behind a pillar or something, uh, so not confronted by this. And also, you're starving, you know, and just that that wonderful freedom of getting out of it and going to the supermarket. And I didn't care. Oh, it, oh and it felt so good. It made me feel stronger. And it, yeah, it was real life. Got to at some point, well, for me, Feel that you're in contact with with the real life, you know, whether that's through your 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 skin, your body, your your brain. Something has got to be real. You can't live. I can't live in a fantasy. And also, you know, you have this brief interaction with David Crosby, right? And you're, you know, you you sort of see all that. You go all the way to Laurel Canyon, you know. Yeah. And then I suppose maybe the doubts have crept in, or the kind of wider view has crept in for you, right? But what? point did you start to think i could leave this all behind because it it's really interesting to read the memoir from the point of view of why bands split which is always somewhat of a mystery isn't it i think sometimes mm. from the from the outside particularly when things are being very successful maybe the critics had started to become a bit more pokey the times were probably changing somewhat definitely all those things which have been charming and part of the vibe are now starting to seem 
not so cool, right? Is that what was happening? Definitely. I think I did have some sort of spirit of the times. I think I, I think although I had n- no analysis of it at all, I just knew it is a thing about what's real, you know. And I don't, I don't, I do want not to be left behind by life, you know. <laughs> I still don't, but I certainly then didn't. Um, I wanted to be in touch with what was happening now in in my my modernity, in my present, not to be left back three years ago in the summer of love and that we'd done that it was really great lovely super while it lasted but this is not my life i need to have a life that is an active life that i can do me i can do so it wasn't really a plan it was that sudden feeling that it was new year and new year has a significance the fact it's a new year and this was a new time i can't do this anymore i'll go what really struck me uh, twice in your story is that you and Mike had been living together in this cottage at Roman camps, and then one day you just leave. You just leave. You just leave all your stuff behind, and that's it, and you never yeah. go back again. And then yeah. r- roll on to the time we've just been discussing now when you've got your own place in this row of cottages at the Glen in Scotland, and you pretty much do the same thing. You just leave it all. You just l- you just leave it all behind and came to London. Yeah, that's right. And 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 funnily enough, then tagged on to the sort of outskirts of polit- political stuff too. Not because I actually wanted to, but just because it sort of happened, you know. But again, you know, to keep the tradition of the in- in- incredible string band going, <laughs> none of it's talked about. You just leave the band, you leave the yeah. cottage, you leave right. Scotland, you come to yeah. London. And, yep. you know, within a short period of time, you're in a new relationship uh, and yep. you, you become a mum, right? That's right. I, I don't know how it happens either. I mean, I'm, I'm as baffled as everybody else. You know, I can't understand it. How could that be? But it, it did, you know. And, well, it's almost the same. I mean, the father of my daughter lives just down the road from me now and no doubt see him over Christmas and the daughter's five minutes away. And, and But that's no more exclusive than it was with the string band. It's no more... Mm. And they're more conventional. It just happens. It just happens. That's that's how it is, you know. I can't explain it. But you went from, you know, Laurel Canyon and hanging out with Crosby Stills to being a cleaner in an off office building in Tottenham Cut Road because you've got a young baby to support, right? As well, yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, quite a radical shift. It was quite radical. I say the, the father of father of said baby was working at Peace News. And just by King's Cross Station, that's where the offices were. The Gay Liberation Front had an office on the ground floor and Peace News had the offices above it. And they paid subsistence wages of about sort of seven pounds a week, as far as I remember. <laughs> it was very brown rice time. But of course, we got a bed sit. And apparently this flat actually did belong to one of the animals, the band, the animals, yeah, because they lived down in Brixton at the time. They were sort of being active in that kind of Brixton community. So, yes, we ended up in this bedsit there, and they were all kind of very radical, non-violent, pacifist. A whole load of people turned up there. That was quite odd, really. 
<laughs> We've come to the end of the story, which is in the book. We've come to the end of the story of your time in Incredible String Band. Of course, it's definitely not the end of your story. In some, in some ways, it's the beginning of your story. It's the beginning of your daughter's story, isn't it? You know, and um, you've had quite a life since, Rose. I have to kind of like clarify this. Were you or were you not the mayor of Aberystwyth? Aberystwyth, by the way, for anybody who's listening, is a town on the far west coast of Wales. And like all municipalities in the UK... Um, it has a mayor or a mayoress. And uh, is this true that you became the mayoress of Aberystwyth? Yeah, I, I was the mayoress of Aberystwyth, which mm. was the consort, as they say, of the mayor. But when you, um, it's also quite, it, it, to me, uh, it, again, it's one of those sort of women things, you know. Yeah. If you if you have any imagination that being a mayoress <laughs> means that you, you know, you just turn up with the hat on for the church service. <laughs> It's a hell of a lot more than that. It is quite a full-time position in its own right. Um, Michelle Obama would tell you that being the presidentess was, was actually quite a job, you know. Well, I mean, the mayor <laughs> sure. is right at the bottom of that spectrum, but it still is a job. You also worked on building sites in, in art galleries. You worked in the kiosk of an amusement arcade. Um, yes, I was, I was doing the change, yeah. Yeah, homeschooling gifted children. And then, of course, the probation service, so actually helping people yeah. with getting back into sort of civilian life, as it were. And the drug world. Um, and then, of course, you're, you're in fact, oh, Dr. Rose Simpson, but quite, keep, that, keep, keep quite quiet about that, but um, you've got a PhD on doing totally about that. I did my thesis on um, a couple of women authors of Weimar Germany. Amazing, amazing. You've obviously got a great memory, Rose, because this book is very detailed. It's a it's a it's a terrific read. It's a terrific picture of the time as well as your life and sort of the incredible string band scene from the inside. You mentioned a couple of times um, the fact that you haven't seen the guys, Robin and Mike, much in the intervening years. Um, they have had a couple of reunions, which I don't think you've been involved in. But why do you think there has been that sort of lack of contact between not just you and them, but also I think between them, um, given the fact that the four of you, including Lick, were so bonded for those few years? I don't really know. Um, but I saw Robin every few years in Wales um, when he was doing various storytelling and things like that. And I always met him after the gig and it was very pleasant, you know, for an hour or something or a cup of tea or something like that. And that was fine. But then I think also you've got to realise that other wives come into it, you know. Mm. And I completely understand that if you're taking if you're taking responsibility for a life with Robin and Mike, that you don't really want it disturbed, you know. You don't want anyone particularly close to them. And I think that's very natural. So that's part of it, I suppose, for me as a woman. I've heard recently that they are actually speaking now. He hadn't been speaking for a long time. And what about you and Mike? Well, he's not wasn't terribly happy about the memoir, I gather, but we haven't actually spoken about it since. Whether they want to meet me is up to them, really. I am happy about the book. I feel it's important to reclaim one's own life. And I think, you know, um, I, I was very happy to live, live the life I had. But nevertheless, it was my life. You know, no one buys the rights to that, you know. And, and so it was, it was right that I tell the story.
The bit that I, I suppose in a way remains mis slightly mysterious for me is your relationship with Licorice and you talk about it in the book as this rather mysterious figure. Even though you were very intimate with over yeah. four years, you didn't really get to know us. So what was your relationship with her like? Well, you know, you said before about that sort of un undercurrent of, of closeness that you really felt, felt bound together. Mm. Well, I mean, she would have defined that. She would have said previous lives. It was something I'm I'm quite happy to suspend. I wouldn't say either way. I'm happy with the image. I like the idea of it, you know. And I know that she and Robin then certainly, with Robin certainly later, believed it absolutely. Uh, it was um it was something they felt impinged on their daily life in the present. For me, it was just um, a nice idea that I could play with. Um, but I was in that relationship with Licky. It seemed real almost because yes i felt really close to her but there was an in, like a huge gulf well it was like someone from another planet then you know mm. very happy to be in their company admired her tremendously in lots of ways that i see more clearly now than i did then but was there much communication between us no not really yeah because she was a bit older than you and i suppose in some ways she was already there when you you know you walk into the room right in in in, in temple cottage and she's there with robin so there's that sense of actually her already being on the inside and you being a little bit of an outsider um but you know you spent so much time together so did you have those kind of normal girly chats you know about about the men never not anything like that shall we arrange to go out for a meal or would you like to cook tonight or nothing like that at all it always remained on that kind of level of sounds ludicrous now it, it does and i understand that but at the time to say you were talking to a fairy being then would not have been considered peculiar um and it certainly had she certainly seemed to be part of something that came out of the woods and mm. sort of drifted always i never could make the clear contact but i got the impression that other people did do you think looking back that is a little odd that you didn't have those more girly intimate no it doesn't seem to me odd it just seems to me part of what was going on i don't think it could have been what it was mm. i don't think that relationship that group could have been without that living in a mist almost in a sense for, for those four years it's like you're all essential because she was this kind of rather mysterious otherworldly say fairy being uh that obviously occupied a very important part in Rob robin's imagination right and yeah. then of course, you were more grounded really weren't you you're more practical you know you could sort of do you could <laughs> do things yeah i was the one who always made porridge on acid <laughs> <laughs> just you see the bubbles exploding just, uh... i'm not sure what my experiences of acid would have ever fancied eating porridge i don't remember much eating but it was great um so i suppose the other question really about um her and she was you know as you, you describe it anyway um the kind of person who took you into Scientology it was and it's so weird of course in the, the contrast between what you described as this rather ethereal person and then this kind of weird middle America corporate yeah. corporate cult it was, it was completely peculiar mm. I mean it was the day that the, the day that Licorice appeared in a dress and cardigan you thought oh my god what's happened now you know but that's what happened mm. that's how it was maybe you also speculate a little bit that in some ways that whatever the mystique was about her, that of all of you perhaps needed something which was more ordered. The only rationale, look, looking back, because you try to order things, you try to think, what was it? I mean, now I suppose you'd be saying, what spectrum was she on or whatever? Right. We didn't make those sort of judgments. She just was, in, and, the, and the whole point was to accept what she was. And it could be, it could be completely irritating beyond. On the other hand, 
I mean, that voice, I just, mm. I love the mm. voice. After you left, she was around for a while, until really until the band split. And then, um, you know, there is this mythology growing up around it about what happened to her. It's very story. She disappeared into the desert. She's hiding from the Scientologists still. She's out there sort of just, you know, incognito and living quite happily and quietly somewhere. And I just wonder whether you had any more contact with her and what your thoughts on what happened to her were. No, all I can say, I had no more contact with her. But maybe six or seven years ago, I was talking to Corina, who lives with Mike Heron. And she had heard from Licorice's sister because her sister had some letters that she'd had from Licorice way back when. I'm not sure of the dates anymore. And she couldn't bear to open them mm. because she felt that there was nothing happy here, you know. And she just felt she couldn't face it and would Corina um, read them with her. That's all. And they did. And it was not really, it was not happy, you know. And so to me, the idea of Lick walking off into the desert, that's the image I prefer to keep. I can also believe it. I absolutely believe it because she was so sure of her own world then, her own judgment then. When I knew her, I can't say what happened after. The girl I knew would have been quite sure that, you know, if she walked off into the desert, the revelation would come and the spirits would descend and, and she would make that judgment not thinking will i just starve and die and but maybe she was happy to do that i don't know but maybe also she settled down to be a sort of midwest housewife or something you know now sitting in some parlor mm. in idaho mm. or somewhere and and just being an elderly lady in america mm. you know i just can't see it i can't and you can understand the clash between what i saw and those images is so great that for me personally the idea of wandering off into the desert is more fitting. Sometimes it's actually quite good to leave things as mysteries and not solved, isn't it? In the context of your story and the story of ISB, that seems quite appropriate, that it was a mysterious band and it's yeah. had some mysterious endings. As it should do somehow. It mm. was a bubble. The incredible string bubble. <laughs> That's the best description of it, actually. And then finally going, put it with a pin. To go right back to the beginning, you know, you are reclaiming your story, but also it's an important story to tell about one of the, you know, many possibly previously unheard stories of women in the counterculture and what it was like from the inside. Yes, still trying to write about that in a way. It's not easy to find out. That's the trouble. Apart from the people that so many people are dead. Um, it's also the fact that people still have this unwillingness to speak. Maybe we do feel that we were we we did it wrong, and I, and I feel I did it wrong in that sense. I, why wasn't I being militant and waving banners? Why wasn't I? Because that wasn't the life I wanted. I and I'm glad I had. I'm glad I made the choices. Part of the issue is that a sort of anxiety about what other more political women might think about the way that you lived because maybe you weren't overtly ideological, you weren't overtly political, you weren't overtly feminist. At a time when we could have been, 
And so somehow that's a little bit embarrassing or shameful or something. It isn't to me, but I can understand that some people mm. who have a higher sensitivity to public opinion than I do maybe feel that. Maybe they feel they ought to have been doing something different, or maybe they're ashamed of the drugs, or maybe they're ashamed. I don't know. I don't understand. There is sometimes a reluctance to do much talking about it. And, and there's also still people have vested interests, you know. Anyone who has a career in music still is going to want to protect their image, their legacy. The other thing which pervades this book um, is a sort of sense of wonder, actually. And I think looking back all those decades, um, it feels like you can you can still live it quite vividly in your memory. Do you still have that sense of wonder that for these four sort of slightly magical years that you did all this stuff? Absolutely. So because of that sense of wonder and because of that sort of sense of rainbows and fairy stories and all the rest of it which still hangs around it, it there's also sort of loss is a mourning for a lost time a lost a youth that's gone it was sort of lovely i don't want it back and i'm delighted i've got something different now you know but it was quite wonderful and the things that people did i mean the astonishing things that people did you, you just look back at the, the events that happened and goodness gracious how astonishing is that you know Rose Simpson, thanks very much for coming to the Bureau of Lost Culture. Oh, thank you very much. You've enjoyed it a lot. Thank you, Rose, for that. Rose's memoir, Muse, Odalisk, Handmaiden, published by Strange Attractor, is a perfect companion to Be Glad for the Song Has No Ending, the compilation of works and writings and drawings about the band by my guest from last time, Edwin Whitaker, and to Peter Neal's film, Be Glad for the Song Has No Ending. I'm going to put links to all three in the show notes. If you love Incredible String Band, or even if you're new to them, as I was, check them out. It's quite a trip. Thanks to Steve Duffy, turned me on to the strange and wonderful world of Incredible String Band, and thanks to you for entering that world today with us and for joining us in the countercultural quixotic adventure called the Bureau of Lost Culture. You can check out all our stories and more at thebureauoflostculture.com. And you can join us again down the road, round the bend, and over the hillsides for more tales from the underground.